First of all, last night, my family experienced something for me that they uh, don't get to experience very often. And uh, leaving out a little bit of the context, um, I was sitting there and uh, I had received a voicemail message from one of my dear church members, and, uh, and it was just kind of a funny message. And uh, I literally had, uh, I think I scared them because I literally LOL'd, right? Now, for those of you who... Uh, have joined the, uh, the texting and smartphone uh, generation. LOL means laugh out loud. I didn't, or lots of love, yeah. Uh, I, did, I didn't just, I didn't just, just a little bit LOL. I, I absolutely full belly, almost a shout, laughed out loud, knee slapping. I wasn't ROTF LOL, which means rolling on the floor laughing out loud, right? Okay, so, so, for those of you who, who are texting and smartphones, Ms. Martha's just joined that, uh, joined that generation. Um, I sent her a gift for the first time yesterday, and it was wonderful. So, uh, but, but all that to say, so, uh, so these things, <laughs> this, this rolling on the floor laughing out loud and this LOL, uh, have you ever thought about, because immediately when I laughed, my, my family asked me, what's going on, Right? Uh, and it was, it was quite hilarious, and so thank you, Andy Bush, for that, uh, for that voicemail message. But um, what was so, what, what's so interesting is uh, I've heard somebody ask the question before, and as I laughed, my family immediately wanted to know what was going on, because what we laugh at tells us a lot about who we are. You ever thought about that? That, that if, if you want to you know yourself, right, what do you laugh at? What, what, what do you find humorous? Uh, that's a really good question for self-examination, but just as good of a question is, what makes you cry? What breaks your heart? When's the last time that you cried? Did you know that uh, it's, uh, this is just averages now? Men and women, uh, they have different levels of crying, right? Women cry about 64 times a year on average. Men cry about 17 times per year on average, and in some households that switched, okay, uh, like mine, okay, I'm a little bit more of a crier, I get that from my dad, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's lots, of, it, it joins, it makes for some interesting uh, times, but, uh, but all that to say, when we, when we laugh or when we cry, when we show these displays of emotion, they actually reveal something about who we are, and so it's very interesting for us today as we come to the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's known as the weeping prophet. And mainly this comes from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, where he says this, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And it's kind of like Charles Wesley writing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He was saying, I wish I had uh, at least a thousand tongues, and if I had a thousand tongues, every one of them would sing the praises of my Lord. And Jeremiah says, oh, that if I had a head that was like an ocean, I could just cry, cry, cry over what's happening among the people of God. Jeremiah is prophesying about a hundred years after the prophet Isaiah, living in the last days of Judah and Jerusalem. And there's much to see and learn from this book, and as we saw in Isaiah some very familiar passages that we typically quote, apart from understanding the context, are found in Jeremiah. And so my prayer for you today is that it, you would come to an understanding of how this beautiful book is part of God's story, but also how it helps define your story. 
And so these, these, uh, these scripture quotations or, or when we throw out verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, that we would understand the context and they would become even more meaningful to us. Now, Jeremiah is full of bad news because God is a God of judgment. But thanks be to God, Jeremiah's weeping has turned to joy as he turns his eyes upon the promises that God revealed to him. And so let's start off at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1. Like the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah is classified as a major prophet. Now, if you've been here with us for any length of time, you've learned that the main thing that separates the major and minor prophets is simply the quantity of words that we have from them. The major prophets uh, read more like stories or anthologies mixed with, uh, mixed with method messages, whereas the minor prophets are just short compilations of messages and poetry and different things like that. Uh, we mentioned when we studied Isaiah that it's very possible that the last part of Isaiah is written by Isaiah's disciples after the exile. And Jeremiah's story is actually very similar. The, this book was put together by a scribe named Baruch after Jeremiah had been prophesying for about 20 years. You can look at Jeremiah 32 and 36 for references in that. But Baruch was just simply a guy, it was almost like Jeremiah's secretary. And Jeremiah had two decades of ministry. And in that two decades of ministry, he'd said many things, he'd seen many things, he'd experienced many things. And basically, he told all of these things under the command of God. He told all of these things to Baruch, and Baruch wrote them down for him. And so, Jeremiah's life and ministry, they basically follow the fall of Judah as they are conquered and exiled. And even Jeremiah himself is kidnapped and taken to Egypt. But while the book begins with weeping, it ends with hope. Now, the first 24 chapters of the book of Jeremiah are all rooted in the core idea of Jeremiah's call, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 1. So let's begin reading in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 10. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put, it, put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up or to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. There... We could spend at least two or three messages just on that passage about this whole idea of calling and before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's uh, something about uh, for us to learn about life and when life begins, right? Uh, there's something for us to learn about how we uh, disqualify ourselves for ministry because of our age. I'm too young to do that. I'm too old to do that. Listen, if God's called you, you're not too young or too old. You're either obedient or disobedient. Amen? We get that from Jeremiah chapter 1. Because ultimately, if God's called us, if God's called us, just like he put the words of prophecy in the mouth of the prophet, God equips you to do whatever he's called you to do. But for Jeremiah specifically, that verse 10 is crucial. Because Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10, if you want to star it or highlight it or underline it, that verse is the explanatory verse for the next 24 chapters. Because what happens over the next 24 chapters? Jeremiah 
is set over the nations and over kingdoms, specifically the kingdom of Israel, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, overthrow, to build, and to plant with his words. That's what God has called him to do. And so we are well acquainted by, at this point with the political and spiritual situation of Israel. The northern kingdom had been conquered by Assyria long ago, the result of their rampant idolatry and the wickedness of their leaders. And remember, after the defeat of the north, Assyria, who had defeated the north, came to southern Israel. And when they came to southern Israel, they tried to conquer it. But King Hezekiah, he sought the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. Well, they were given kind of a stay if you will, because southern Israel or, or Judah, as it's known in the prophetic literature, was not uh, innocent of idolatry itself. They had a number of wicked kings. They had a few good kings in there, but they had a number of wicked kings, and those wicked kings just basically advanced the, uh, the idolatry of the people. And so God finally gets to the point to where he is fed up with it. His patience has been... Uh, exhausted at this particular point in time. And so here's the process. I want, you to, I want you to just think about this in your mind. Think about what we've seen, okay? Uh, Judah, southern Israel, was idolatrous. That means that they put other things in the place of God. That led them to foolishness, because even though it's a bad word for some families, sin makes you stupid, okay? Idolatry transformed them into a certain kind of person, namely the kind of person who makes worse decisions. It just gets worse and worse and worse. The more you give in to pride, the farther pride takes you down the path of destruction. Because there's a way that seems right to a man... But in the, in the end, it leads to destruction. And so if you do what popular culture tells you to do and you follow your heart, then you will follow your heart right into the pit of hell. The prophets make this very plain for us. And what they do is they put up God's people on display for us to see that exact process. So you, you're idolatrous. You have beliefs about God that are not biblical. You put things in God's place. You may be here today, but you go home and you worship your little idols at home, what, no matter what they may be. And that sin opens the door for you to give yourself over to foolishness. And as you give yourself over to foolishness, then that process of sin results in a greater and more public destruction. That's its one goal, which is why John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's not something to mess around with. And we see that in Israel. And we would do well to, to learn from Israel's history in this way. And so God calls Jeremiah to tell the nation of Israel that God is going to use Babylon to take them down, which is not a very popular message. So turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7, and let's see an example of this, of this unpopular message that Jeremiah was called to preach to the people. And listen, to show you how surrendered these prophets uh, were to God, I told you about Isaiah walking around naked. That's very uncomfortable to talk about. Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, he said, this nation is so wicked, I command you to be single. You don't want to have a wife and raise your kids in a culture like this. It, it was devastating. I mean, just imagine that, that call upon Jeremiah's life. And, and being a prophet was not just about, you know, having a light bulb pop on top of your head. No, I know what I'm supposed to go say. And then you go say it. It was an all-of-life-consuming vocation. And so 
Jeremiah chapter 7, look at what it says in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Standeth in the gate of the Lord's house, which is the temple, there in Jerusalem, and proclaim there this word. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's kind of like, (laughs) this is is the situation in modern English, okay? On the Sabbath, Israel showed up to church, and all throughout the week, they had not spent any time with God. They had not sought God. They had just been about their their, their own life, their own agenda, their own passions. They'd done what they wanted to do. And then they show up to church and they put their church mask on and they pretend like nothing's wrong. And when they're singing, man, they're singing to the Lord and they're singing a chorus over and over and over again. What's the chorus? This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. It says it three times. This is the temple of the Lord, right? And why are they doing that? Because sin not only has made them foolish, sin has blinded them, blinded them to the reality of their condition. God's not fooled, though. Trust me, God's never fooled. They're pretending, but God is not fooled. And Jeremiah begins to develop this metaphor of idolatry as adultery. Like the person who tries to put on a happy face in front of their spouse when they've just finished breaking their marriage vows with another. Israel was trying to put on their religious face as they came to the temple, not even recognizing how they were just playing a game. But it was worse than the people wanted to admit, and God is angry with Israel, specifically because, look at verse 31. He tells him to go down to Shiloh and look at what's being done there. And so look at uh, chapter 7, verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to what? Burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So at the outset of this message, you, you may be thinking, wow, why is God being so harsh? <laughs> that just sounds awful. That you're going to, God, you're going to destroy your own people? Like you're going you're gonna to bring destruction down upon them? You're going to let them eat the fruit of their ways? You're really going to let them do that? And God says, oh, if you only knew how bad it really is. Their idolatry has not just transformed them into foolish and blinded people, it's also turned them into people that sacrifice the very gifts that I've given them, the most treasured earthly possession. Possession's a bad word, but they're children. They're sacrificing their own children to advance their idolatrous false gospel and false kingdom. They may call it Judaism, or in our case, call it Christianity, but it is nothing like Christianity. And oh, friends, if we, would, if we would just pause for a second and recognize the need for self-examination. A couple weeks ago we said, be careful that you're actually worshiping the biblical God because you could very easily create a God of your own understanding. Even though we're not in a 12-step program, that, that is our issue. Because what do we all want to do? What did Adam and Eve want to do? They wanted to create a God of their own understanding. A God who said, you want to go that way? Go ahead. Have fun. I'll be here when you come back. 
But that's far from the biblical description of God that we've seen, isn't it? No, God, God demands our delight, our attention, our affection. Why? Because he gives us the breath in our lungs. Because he has given us life. And so Jeremiah says they're killing their children. They're ruining the lives that God has given them. And so because of their idolatry, Jeremiah tells them that God would come and destroy his own temple by sending an enemy from the north. And so we say, why would God do this? We kind of asked that a little bit, but why would God do this? I've got a little video for you, which you can see this a little bit better than you, you could the one last week. Um, I'm just going to start this video and let's talk because you can turn over actually to Jeremiah chapter 18. Very familiar story about Jeremiah going down to the potter's house, right? And up on the screen right now, you got a potter uh, throwing a pot, as they call it, working on a potter's wheel. Has anybody ever tried this before, by the way? Anybody? A couple people. Is it hard? Very, very much so. I, that's kind of what I figured, just watching this guy and the precision, right? Uh, first of all, he takes that lump of clay, he throws it on the, on the wheel, he gets it spinning, and he puts water on it. And what does he do? He exerts pressure at just the right moment and just the right place to shape the pot. And this guy, you wouldn't know it from what he's actually, uh, what, what you think maybe it's a flower vase or whatever. It's going to turn into a big salad bowl, actually. Um, we'll just keep on letting it run, and maybe you'll hear half of what I'm saying. But um, <laughs> didn't think about that one all the way through. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, so he's exerting pressure, and what it's doing is it's forming and shaping the pot. This is what God told Jeremiah he was doing with Israel. Through Moses, through David, through Samuel, through, through Joshua, uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, through all of these people, God had shaped Israel. He'd given them his law. He had told them what he expected of them. He told them how to enter his presence in the book of Leviticus. He had allowed them to cross not just one body of water, but two bodies of water. And all of this was meant to shape their culture in a very specific way to make them a very specific kind of people. But what happened was when they created their own religion, when they, cre they created their own form of Judaism, when they created their own forms of worship that were false worship, it transformed them into another type of person. And so what Jeremiah saw when he was down at the potter's house is he saw the potter doing just what this potter's doing. He was working the clay into what his mind was envisioning that it should look like. And so at any point in time, and the potter doesn't do it here because that's not what shows up on YouTube, right? It's the finished product. But probably before this guy did this, he probably messed up. And what do they do when they mess up? They start, how do they start over? Just mash it, right? Because what do you have to do? You got to get it back down into that moldable lump again. So why would God do this to Israel, his people, through Babylon? Because the potter noticed the imperfection, noticed the idolatry, noticed the rebellion, the child's sacrifice, and he would have no more of it. He could not continue shaping it. He must destroy it and get it back to its moldable form again. And it's really important for us to... There's the salad bowl. It's really important for us to, to learn this 
Because if you want to understand Old Testament Judaism, which gave way to or, or was, uh, is fulfilled by New Testament Christianity, if you want to understand the culture in which we are living, if you want to understand baptism, if you want to understand the Lord's Supper, if you want to understand all of these things, then you need to recognize that what's coming in Israel uh, changed Israel and its perspective and its culture forever. That's how serious it was. God put the lump of clay back to its original moldable form. And that's what Jeremiah sees in this chapter, in chapter 18. And throughout the next several chapters, Jeremiah is continuing to prophesy judgment. You look at chapter 23, he's prophesying about the, the lying prophets. And that was one of the problems, was that all of the leaders in Israel, they were the ones who had embraced corruption. They were prophets and they were priests and the king himself had embraced corruption and idolatry. And so chapter 25, you need to put a, another little star in chapter 25 in your Bible because chapter 25 is the landmark chapter in the book of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah, we said that he, not, he didn't just weep over the judgment that was coming, but God eventually led him to hope. And the beautiful thing is, is that this is one of those things that's immediately transferable to us. If you're broken today, God's not just the God of the broken. God is the God who leads the broken to hope. He did that for Jeremiah by helping Jeremiah understand what he was doing. And that's the exact same thing he does for us, except we have something not in the future, first and foremost to look to, but we have something in the past, namely the cross of Christ. But Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, you can underline those, because this is what God said to Jeremiah, is that this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But here's his hope, that then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Making the land an everlasting waste. And so in chapters 26 through 45, Babylon attacks Israel, and Jeremiah lived through that. He continued to beg and repent, but the leaders kept rejecting him, throwing him in stocks at one point in time, and, and uh, threatening, him, threatening his life. But right in the middle of this passage, we come to the infamous chapter, Jeremiah chapter 29. And so turn over there to Jeremiah chapter 29. Yes, they're going into exile, but God's not finished. What was God's plan for them since Abraham? You remember what, the, what God said to Abraham? I will bless you so that you can what? Be a blessing. You see, in the garden, God bestowed his blessing upon human beings. But sin separated them from that blessing. This is creation and fall, right? Sin separated them from this blessing. And so because they were separated from that blessing, they essentially became a curse. And you look at uh, the story we've already talked about today, the story about Noah, right? You uh, look at uh, the Tower of Babel. God has had to judge his people, the, the human beings. He's had to judge them over and over again. And so chapter 11 of Genesis, you have the Tower of Babel, which interestingly enough, is the origination of Babylon, okay? So that's significant here. But you have the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, but then in chapter 12, God appears to Abraham and he says, I will bless you and make you a blessing so that the nations can be blessed through your family. We know Abraham's family is Israel, right? 
And so what's God doing? God is correcting them. God is disciplining them. And he's going to send them out in exile. But he's not going to forsake them. In their exile, he is going to bless them and make them a blessing. Does that sound familiar? And so look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 9. Uh, I said 29. I'm sorry. Verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6. So when, they're, when you're in exile, Israel, this is what you need to do. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But here's the key, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And what are we going to see in the major prophets like Daniel coming up? We're going to see just this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seeking the welfare of the city and having to stand up to the, to the government, the idolatrous, rebellious, pagan governments, and praying for the welfare of that city and God raising them up as a blessing. So this is what God's doing. And then he basically tells them, he says, seek the welfare of the city, for I'm going to bless you, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Verse 11, we know this verse, right? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope, and then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your what? Heart. What are you talking about, God? That's crazy talk. <laughs> you say, Why? Because the heart of Israel has been the problem the whole time. You remember, they followed their heart. It led them right into destruction. So God, what are you doing? You making empty promises now? Just trying to pull people along, dangle a carrot in front of them with a little false hope? No, God never gives false hope. When God makes promises, when God gives revelation, God's intention is for that to build faith. And so how is he going to deal with Israel's heart? Turn over to chapter 31. This is the landmark chapter as far as the new covenant. Remember we talked about the covenants as being uh, like being at the optometrist and then putting that little uh, thing over your face with all the different lenses and it, they click it a couple of times, you know, and it, is that a little better, a little worse? And they flip it over, is it a little better, a little worse? God's covenants are just like that. As God gives covenants, as God explains covenants, then it's one click towards clarity about what his ultimate purposes are. And so God, how are you going to deal with the heart of Israel? How are you going to deal with the people who are in rebellion? After exile, look at, look at what's going to happen in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Now skip down to verse 17. Chapter 31, verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. All right, now... This is, a, this, is, this is prophetic future. God telling them that after 70 years of exile that they're going to come back. Well, we know that happens with Nehemiah and Ezra. But then spiritually, we know that that's going to happen in Romans chapter 11 one day. right? We've, we've looked at that before. And so your people are going to come back from exile. And then what's going to happen? Look at verse 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it not on, here's my addition, not on tablets of stone, but I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What new covenant is, is Jeremiah talking about? Well, let's say our four uh, subplots of the entire Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Jeremiah chapter 31 is pointing to the redemption that's coming. You see how it's all coming together now? God created, sin separated, God restored. He restored by redeeming. And he will write that law on their hearts, which is exactly what John told Nicodemus in, I mean, what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That when the Spirit of God comes, that we will have new hearts and new minds. That's the spiritual uh, process of regeneration. We talk about the, the priesthood of the believer for every person being able to go before God on his own. That's rooted in this chapter. We talk about why do we only baptize believers? Because Jeremiah chapter 31 says that everybody in this new family will know the Lord. It's not a future knowing. It is a present knowing. And so what, what, what question do I ask little Mason Espy? Have you trusted Jesus to be your Savior and your treasure? If they haven't, there's no reason for them to be in the waters of baptism. Because they're not fully in the family of God yet. For people to be in the family of God, they must trust in the Lord Jesus personally as their Savior. And then they come into the body of Christ. That's why we believe in regenerate church membership. That's why we insist upon the reality of bearing fruit. Next Sunday, you're going to vote on deacons. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that these will be the kind of men that you should vote for. 1 Timothy chapter 3 lists out qualifications. Well, that seems kind of odd. How can you list out qualifications for deacons? Because the Spirit of God is not divided in His mind. He is raising up leaders for the church. And He has put His Spirit for this purpose in these men so that he can grow them into a certain type of leader. And you don't need to be ignorant about that. So I hope that's why you took your little ballot, or not your ballot, but you took your little sheet home last week and you read the qualifications on the back and you pray through it because that's important for us not to just have regenerate church membership, but godly men of integrity leading this church family. And then how do we know that once a person is in the family of God and they know the Lord, the Spirit of God is in them, how do, know, how do they know that one day they won't commit a sin that will exhaust the patience of God and God will cast them off? Because when God says, I will forgive their iniquity, it's not just a past forgiveness, but it's a past forgiveness, a present forgiveness, and a future forgiveness. Because what did Jesus himself say on the cross? It is finished. You can't add anything to it. Which means that you can't obey your way into more favor. And you can't sin your way out of favor. All coming to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is, I, I, once again, I could just spend hours on these texts. But God is doing something new in Israel. But he's also identifying a long-term enemy. And chapters 46 through 51 contain poems about how God is, going to, uh, God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. 
But surprisingly, chapters 50 and 51 are the longest poems in this section, and they're all about God's judgment on Babylon itself. Although God used this nation to execute His his justice, God does not endorse their wickedness. Like I said earlier, Babylon has its roots in the Tower of Babel. And so from Genesis chapter 11, here to the middle of the Old Testament, the middle of the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, all the way to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, Babylon is present. And so it's one of those things we kind of need to keep in the back of our minds to understand that Babylon represents an archetypal rebellious nation. And can I tell you something? We celebrated the stewardship of what it is to be an American last week. Friends, we need to be careful because America has already started looking a lot like Babylon. And so what do we do? In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6, or verse 7, we should seek the welfare of the city, pray for it, reach it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in their welfare we find our welfare. That's the, <laughs> that's the whole idea of American community is rooted in that idea that we live not just for ourselves, but we live loving our neighbor for their benefit. And then just lastly, chapter 52, turn to it. This is how Jeremiah ends with hope. Because after Babylon, the great has been used to conquer Israel, to destroy the temple, and to send the people in exile. Coordinating with the story found at the end of 2 Kings, the story is told about a man named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is in the royal line of David. He would have been king of Jerusalem and Judah if there was a Jerusalem and Judah. And he is exiled in Babylon. He's in prison. And 2 Kings chapter 25 tells, that he, tells the story that he's in prison, uh, but the king of Babylon hears that he has an Israelite king in his prison. And he brings him out of captivity and frees him and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life. And Jeremiah chapter 52, specifically uh, beginning in verse 31, it ends with this glimmer of hope. And what is the glimmer of hope? That God has not given up on his people, but like the potter, he's just brought them back to the moldable lump. That God is not finished with his people, and that's why his promises, like what we find in Romans chapter 11, are significant for us even to this day, which is, once again, not to just uncovering things that have been covered, is why traditionally, it's why traditionally, the United States has always considered Israel a strong ally because we recognize the promise all the way back to Genesis chapter what chapter twelve that those who curse you I will curse and those who bless you I will bless. And so if God's going to save Israel one day, we say maybe we should be on Israel's side. I mean, don't you guys think so too? And so that's why there's traditionally been this American policy of closeness with Israel. And I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying that that's the mentality behind it. Because God is not finished. And the application for us today is that I guarantee you that there's people in this room who think that He is. He's finished with you. He's finished with somebody sitting next to you. And maybe you're doubting a little bit about the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. And, and you already know the other book that Jeremiah wrote is the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations chapter 3 is the, it's the one that we get the wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, from. And if, if God would have anything to say to you through this message of Jeremiah and this message from uh, Israel's destruction today is that God's not 
done. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to give up on you. And look at Romans chapter 8. God, God doesn't give up on his people. God's not done with you. God, God is inviting you even today, hearing this, that you need to, like Israel, you need to repent, you need to trust in him, you need to walk in faith and not in the flesh. Because all of our life, just like Jeremiah, the way he found hope was by fixing his eyes, not on his present situation, but on the promises of God. Do you see that? We've seen that over and over, over with Hosea and Micah and Zephaniah and all these other prophets, that the way they found hope in the midst of God's coming judgment was to fix their eyes on what God had said, not on what people were doing around them, not the situation around them. God is faithful to keep His promises. And here's, here's, a, here's a story to share with you just in closing. To illustrate this, Nancy and Ed Huizinga, H-U-I-Z-I-N-G-A, okay, Huizinga, were at church rehearsing for the Christmas program when their house burned down. It wasn't their first tragedy that year. Three months earlier, when a friend, a widow with two children, died of cancer, the Huizingas took her kids to live with them as part of the family, and they brought all their mother's possessions with them into the house that was now lying in ashes. So when their house was destroyed, it wasn't just their home that was lost. It was the home that these two children had already lost their parents. It was their home as well. And the following week, they sifted through the ashes. In fact, their church organized uh, an ash-sifting party so that they didn't have to do it by themselves. True story, because I, I checked it. In fact, uh, the, the lady, Nancy, she just passed away in May. Um, but she... In uh, the church, they were sifting through all of these ashes, and in the midst of the ashes, they found one sheet of paper that wasn't burned. And you know what it said? It's a true story. It said contentment. The definition of contentment. Realizing that God has already provided everything we need for our present happiness. It's the one sheet of paper they found that hadn't been burned. Contentment. Realizing that God has already provided everything that we need for our present happiness. You see, that's the point of putting your faith in the promises of God and in the character of God. You won't have contentment if you just look at the situation around you. You won't have contentment unless you look by faith at the promises of God. Because God is not somebody who just... Um, who just uh, sends us a, a text saying, I hope the ash heap sifting goes well. God shows up with us in the midst of the ashes and he sifts through the ashes with us and he rebuilds us. That's the point of the potter's wheel. He remakes us and he reshapes us. When we trust in him, when we, gain the conf that we will gain the confidence that he will not give up on us, that he will finish the work he started in us no matter how high the highs and how low the lows. I feel like a... like just a, a looped pastor sometimes. Because I, I say this over and over and over again. The Word of God is not just for Arowana cubbies and puggles and sparks and truth and training. I mean, we don't just talk about a quiet time as some kind of like Christian ideal. <laughs> like these are the core components of life. And if your faith is faltering today, then the remedy is in your hands. 
And God wants it to be in your heart. Because when we store God's word in our heart, then we are taken to a place where we can see beyond the pain. We can see beyond the brokenness. Because it's real, right? It's close by. It's not, and it may not be leaving anytime soon. I mean, 70 years of exile, right? People lived and died, and that was all they knew. God has not promised that we won't have years of exile. But what God has promised is that He will sift through the ashes with us. He will reveal His truth to us because He's already done it. And then in the midst of that, He will give us promises to cling to. He will give us a vision to have faith and joy and hope and peace in the midst of the pain. And that's why our memory verse, even for this week, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, just hits me right between the eyes. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, my prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Don't forget about that part. Make your requests known before God, and then what? Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not just like playtime for kids. You need to walk with God in this way today. And I, don't, I can't say it any differently than I've said it over the past five years. I can't. And that's the toughest part about being a pastor. Is recognizing that the reason some of you struggle is not because the answer is not there. But it's because you, because we're, we are raised in this kind of culture You've been taught that you need to carve your own path. You need to make your own way. The guys walking with Jesus didn't like that because Jesus is the author and perfect of our faith. He's the one who's carved out the path for us to walk. And if you want to walk that path, then don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. And so today, today, that's the invitation. It's, if, if you need to trust Jesus for the salvation uh, from your sins, from being saved from the wrath of God, just like little Mason Espy has done, then you can do that today, no matter how young or old you are. But my bet is that more of you need to follow the invitation that I just gave, and that is to stop defining Christianity on your own terms. Stop making church optional. Stop making Bible reading something that we just do with our kids at bedtime. Stop making prayer just the things that the same phrases that you repeat over and over and over again at dinner time or or at night. Stop thinking that scripture memory is beyond you, or just scripture meditations beyond you. Stop making excuses for not walking with Jesus, and just recognize that He has put the answer in your hands, and it's up to you. He's not going to do it for you. It's up to you to consume it. And as you consume it, you will find your faith bolstered and you will find your ability to endure just advanced and grown. And you will find that you become not just, not just somebody who has that peace that surpasses all understanding, but you will find that the people around you are getting to taste the sweet fruit of your walk with Jesus. And that's what we want. We don't want we're not we're not looking to create categories of believer here. We want to create one one type of believer. And that's one who walks by faith, clings to Jesus. And so that just leaves the question for you. I asked you what you laughed at, I asked you what makes you cry. But what are you clinging to today? 
If it's not Jesus, then you need to repent just like Israel. And the good news is, is that he's here waiting with open arms. And so my prayer for you today is that you would respond and surrender because that is the only place to be. And so we're going to sing that. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. As we sing, you make that your declaration. And so as Philip comes, Miss Debbie comes, I'm going to pray and then we'll have our time of invitation.